Well, welcome to a phoned-in version of Mad Dogs and Englishman. It slightly limits our capacity to do on-the-money weather reports, of course, because I'm in a different location than is Kevin. Where I am, it is quite nice uh, weather, although there are some clouds in the sky, but a sun poking through. How is it in Buckley Towers? Uh, roughly the same. Roughly, roughly the same. same. Okay, so we're on the same page with the weather. Now, Chris Hayes, both of our favorite MSNBC hosts, I'm sure, has penned a piece that if a conservative had written would, just for the title alone, have been roundly condemned as historically offensive. And in it, uh, the piece I should say is called The New Abolitionism. The subtitle is Averting Planetary Disaster Will Mean Forcing Fossil Fuel Companies to Give Up At Least $10 Trillion in Wealth. Hayes argues in a good number of words that the only way to save the planet from the imminent perils of global warming and mass death is to liquidate the $10 trillion that uh, the oil companies apparently hold in assets and so forth, um, much as the only way to end the evils of slavery were to take away uh, the property and indeed make no longer property uh, the human beings that were held in bondage by Southerners. So, what do we think of this idea? Oh, where do we start with this? This is just bat guano crazy. And uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you a little theory here for a second. As you, as you probably know, uh, Chris and his wife just had a kid, right? And uh, he announced this on Twitter the other day. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume this is sleep deprivation talking here. And he's not actually this ridiculous. So a couple of things here. One is that no responsible scientific body, so far as I know, is predicting anything like what Chris talks about here. If you look at the UN Climate Panel, their 100-year analysis of what they think global warming might do to the planet amounts to a 1% or possibly 2% loss of global GDP 100 years hence. So, yeah, some possibly bad things associated with that, but not necessarily, you know, the sort of catastrophic comet hitting the planet stuff that Chris seems to be thinking about here. But the bigger and sort of you know, nastier issue, I think, is that the problem with slavery wasn't that abolishing it was going to cost slave owners money. <laughs> the problem with slavery is the entire idea of having property in human beings, which right. is wrong and immoral and evil. It wouldn't have mattered if the value of those slaves was a dime. It wouldn't have mattered if it was ten trillion dollars. It's the uh, you know it's the moral point there that really matters. So the idea, well, gosh, there's so many things wrong with this. So the idea that you can just sort of pillage energy companies in the name of uh, heading off a one or maybe one and a half percent loss of GDP 100 years hence is questionable in and of itself. But then as a purely practical matter, uh, Chris is nuts here because when you're talking about oil companies, you're talking about a lot of state-run companies like Sinopec, which is run by the government of China. Good luck with that. You know, good luck telling you're going to telling these people they're going to forfeit their assets to your climate change project. They got nuclear weapons, buddy. You, sure. know, you can't well, just go in there and dictate to them. Let, let me let me just interrupt to say that that Chris Hayes does two rather silly things I think in this essay. He he's not sure how much the uh, 
value of the unexcavated carbon is worth. He says it could be worth up to $20 trillion, but he uses $10 because it's the number that he has extrapolated for how much he perceives in today's uh, money that the slaves would be worth. But what he does is he, he does the trick that we see reasonably frequently. I think Jonathan Chait did it to Quinn Hillier, where he makes an appalling comparison, an appalling claim, but then says that he's not. So he says it is almost always foolish to compare a modern political issue to slavery because there's nothing in American history that is slavery's proper analogue. So before anyone misunderstands my point, let me be clear and state the obvious. There is absolutely no conceivable moral comparison between the enslavement of Africans and African Americans and the burning of carbon to power our devices. Humans but are humans. let me go ahead and make that comparison. <laughs> right, right. And he says humans are humans, molecules are molecules. The comparison I'm making is a comparison between the political economy of slavery and the political economy of fossil fuel. Now, I have an issue with that, not only because, as you say, he's effectively making the comparison, but then saying that he's not. But if he genuinely believes that the problem is so acute, so deleterious, so fatal, that it would be worth uh, liquidating $20 trillion worth of assets. And I should say devices is something of a euphemism. It's not as if the majority of that energy is going to power iPhones, it's going to power hospitals and heating bills and food production and transport and all sorts of things that make people live longer and and in, in a more happy sense. But if he believes, and you do hear this a lot on the left, that we are all going to die, that Bangladesh is going to be flooded and everyone there is going to drown, that we will not be able to walk outside, as Bill Maher said when I was on his show, without 190 SPF sun cream and all of that stuff, then he should be comparing it to slavery, right? I mean, if we're bringing about the end of the world, that is about as bad as enslaving people. In some regards, it's worth because you're actually killing people. So I'm not quite sure why he backs off, except that he doesn't want to be uh, accused of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what he's doing here. I think this is just a confused and half-literate piece of work. I mean, Chris is not a dumb guy, but this is a dumb essay. And um, yeah, it's just hard to even really get where he's going with this. Uh, you know, so there's a sentence there toward the uh, the middle where he writes, the last time in American history that some powerful set of interests relinquished its claim on $10 trillion worth of wealth was 1865, and then only after four years and more than 600,000 lives lost in the bloodiest, most horrific war we have ever fought. Well, if he's doing what he says he's doing, that he's not making a moral claim or a moral equivalence between these two things, then his sentence is just without meaning. He could put a he put a, could have put a goddamn knock knock joke in there, and it would have been the same thing, right? But he's uh, you know he's clearly he's clearly trying to have it both ways on this. The other question, of course, that he overlooks here is that we're not talking about American firms here, because global warming is a global issue. We're talking about countries all over the world. And you hit upon this a little bit, but I think it's really worth pointing out, which is when you talk about reducing the world's energy consumption, you're not talking about does Kevin get to have two iPads or one iPad? Uh, you know, do I get to have an eight-cylinder car or a six-cylinder car? You're talking about do people in Bangladesh get to eat? Do people in northern China get to have heat in their houses or do they get to not have heat in their houses? Do people get to have 1,500 calories a day? Get to have to get to have 1,200 calories a day? You know, it's a real question about what we're going to do in the long term about the real material standard of living of the poorest people in this world. Because for people like Chris Hayes or people like you or people like me, you know, it's not really going to hit us. We'll pay more for stuff over the long term. Okay, fine. But if you're a poor person in rural India 
And the question is, can we get food delivered to you via truck or via train at a cost of X, or is it be a cost of four times X? That's the difference for you between eating and not eating. Right. You know, for, for you and me, it's like, or we'll maybe go out to dinner once or twice less a week. But for people in, you know, Pakistan, lots of other places, Africa, certainly, it's a question of eating, not eating, having energy, not having energy, having schools with lights on, having schools with no lights. And uh, Chris doesn't even begin to uh, address this problem. He just refuses to deal with the fact that there are always going to be trade-offs here. There's no such thing as clean energy. We all know this. Every source of energy is going to have environmental impacts. And uh, every attempt to legislate those away is going to have economic impacts. So you've got to you know, figure out where the balance is. Right. Now, I think it should be said that a mistake conservatives often make when debating this is a mistake that progressives made routinely during the Bush administration, say, and that is to look at what might happen were progressives right and were progressives to get what they want and therefore presume that the initial claim is wrong. What I mean by that is is to look at, say, Chris Hayes' preferred solution here and to say, across the board, because the left would benefit with higher taxes and more regulations and the green energy programs that they want, therefore the claim that there is a problem must be wrong. And this always reminds me of, you know, there was a lot of stupid uh, print uh, in, you know, 2002, 2003, 2004 from people effectively saying, well, look how Bush has benefited from 9-11. And in the early days, politically, Republicans really did because they were harsh on terrorism and and these questions in a country that was baying for blood, really. Um, Therefore, they must have planned it, or therefore they must be embellishing the threat. Now, generally, as I say, I think conservatives make a big mistake. But it it is a little bit difficult to make that case in this instance. I mean, you have to ask the question, hey, why would anyone think that people who hate capitalism might hijack the climate change train, right? You know, that's just a little too convenient to me. There's no evidence whatsoever. And I'm not a global warming denier, as the phrase goes. I'm somewhere in the middle, which is that I think that clearly there is a problem of sorts, but I don't think it's a as predictable as we think it is. The models are all over the place. Secondly, whatever is happening, I really don't think that uh, trying to stop it is the right way forward. I think trying to deal with it is probably the best way. But, you know, I do laugh in the faces, frankly, of people who say that we're all going to be dead within a few years. You know, the fact that he has called for this is just a little too convenient in my book um, because the input, the input for the, the driving force behind it is nonsense and the, and the suggestion is, is well over the top. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't quite get what you mean there. Well, what I mean is that he, you know, this is not a serious conversation, right? This is, this is the, the sort of ranting of somebody who has a particular view of the world and has decided um, that government is the solution to it. In in this case, I think conservatives would be right to be suspicious. You have somebody who doesn't like capitalism and he's taking the most possible extreme, possibly extreme uh, version of, of, of what problem we're facing. And then he's He's sort of dealing with it in his ideal world with the most extreme possible reaction to it. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. And the thing about you know people like Chris is that um, no matter what the set of problems is, the answer is always the same, which is can we seize wealth 
from people who have what we think is too much of it and use it for our own ends. Yes. Uh, can we think of some way to financially or economically disadvantage folks that we don't like? And uh, at some point, you know, I think that approaches intellectual dishonesty. And I think that this particular piece by Chris is is sloppy enough that it gets uh, it certainly gets up to the edge of that if it's not right, you know, outright maliciously dishonest. It's certainly a it's a mess and it's incoherent. Absolutely. Now, I thought perhaps for the second half, um, we could talk about the Supreme Court decisions today. I spent a little time this morning reading the opinions and the dissents. I'm not sure how up to speed you are, but you mentioned them earlier before the show. Yeah, the one I was looking at was the Michigan affirmative action case, which just made me want to, you know, if I had hair, I would think about pulling it out. Because, you know, what we've gone here is the old, uh, you know, the old totalitarian principle, everything not forbidden is mandatory. So for the longest time, our affirmative action cases, you know, Bakke and all the rest of those were about, are the states allowed to engage in racial discrimination? And the court, you know, would say yes, under this circumstance, yes, under that circumstance. And they would sort of narrow it down. This Michigan case is exactly the opposite, is it's, is Michigan allowed to not engage in racial discrimination. So Michigan had, uh, through its uh, university board of uh, trustees, a uh, set of admissions policies that took race into account in some limited way uh, that was thought to be kosher with the most recent uh, Supreme Court decisions on that. And people in Michigan didn't like this very much. And so they proposed and passed and adopted a constitutional amendment, which simply says we're going to have race-neutral policies in government in Michigan. We're not going to engage in any sort of racial discrimination. And this was taken all the way up to the Supreme Court as being potentially unconstitutional. And Scalia is, is basically screaming in print here, or he's saying, you know, it's finally it's come to this. We have an equal protection clause that says that you can't engage in racial discrimination. And we have a case now deciding where right. that clause means that you I, have to engage in racial discrimination. I have the text here, actually. If I, could I think we should probably read this because it really sets up the question. Scalia says, and Justice Thomas uh, concurs with this, this, this uh, opinion, Scalia says, it has come to this, called upon to explore the jurisprudential twilight zone between two errant lines of precedent, we confront a frighteningly bizarre question. Does the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment forbid what its text plainly requires? Needless to say, except that this case obliges us to say it, the question answers itself. While it doesn't necessarily answer itself, it was a 6-2 case. Kagan recused herself, or abstained, and Breyer joined with the, the five who are typically referred to as conservatives. But isn't it worrying that there were two members of the Supreme Court who effectively cited, and there are some dodgy precedents which cloud this, but who effectively decided that it was possible that an amendment which explicitly calls for equal protection might have made it illegal for a state to ban unequal protection. Yeah, and if you read Sotomayor's uh, dissent here, which she uh, very dramatically read from the bench, it's it's shocking. It's it's legally illiterate. It's logically incoherent, and she order and she's basically making you know the sort of Orwellian argument that the decision to get rid of racial discrimination amounts to racial discrimination, and the only way to assuage racial discrimination is to mandate and require racial discrimination. 
I don't see how you get that out of the Equal Protection Clause uh, unless you're just not trying to. And this is really disturbing. I mean, I was always, of course, pretty skeptical of Sotomayor from the first from the first day, given her politics and given her CV. But in this case, she really takes the mask off as being just a naked political activist. I mean, if you read through uh, her dissent, there's basically nothing about the law in there. I mean, it's all just politics. It's all, you know, it, essentially it's a, it amounts to an argument that if there's a an election about a constitutional amendment and the election doesn't go the way that MALDEF and the NAACP want it to go, then its effects have to be invalid. Yes. You know, her, her argument here is really weird. So she's saying that people in Michigan could have, for instance, lobbied the university authorities to change their uh, admissions policies, and that would have been okay. But by changing the Constitution, by changing the fundamental law, they took away the ability of people who disagree with them from getting what they want to. So she's essentially saying that, you know, my side lost the election, and therefore the election has to be invalid because of this weird, you know, disparate impact uh, standard that, uh, that, that, you know, sort of underpins all these assumptions. And I think that it's nuts, and it's you know it's borderline totalitarian. Yes. I, well, one thing that interested me reading all of the the majority opinion and and the dissents was we hear so much about this five four split on the court. There was an interesting event that I watched on YouTube of uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg at the National Press Club. I think it was held last week, and of course they're great friends. Yeah. And they love going to the opera together. And it was nice to watch them together. She is looking very old. But it was nice to watch them together because they obviously like each other very much. And the host said to Scalia, well, you know, what about these 5-4 decisions? And what about the split on the court? And how about you two? You often disagree vehemently. And, and he said, well, actually, we don't disagree all the time. You know, it's not as if it's always 5-4. That's just the way the media portrays it. And sometimes on the knee-jerk cases is what he called them. And today was interesting because two cases came down today. On the affirmative action case that we were just discussing, as I say, it was 6-2. to two. Breyer joined with Roberts and Kennedy um, and Scalia and Thomas. Um, Although and, Scalia and Thomas didn't think much of the decision. And Alito. No, I, I agree, but it still went six to two. Kagan recused yeah. herself. But on the other on the other case that was held today, it was a Fourth Amendment case, and it was a uh, it was a complicated one. But the the root question was what constitutes probable cause, and mm. the uh, the four dissenters with um, with whom I agree um, were Scalia, who wrote the opinion, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. This is a case out in California of somebody who was. Uh, had marijuana in their car and they argued that their car should never have been searched because somebody who called in and said that they were drunk driving, that they were acting erratically, is not enough evidence for a cop who then follows you and finds literally nothing wrong with your driving to search the car. What they called, they said there was a, they were drunk driving, the cops followed them, found nothing wrong, but stopped them anyway. Now Scalia wrote this barn-burning dissent. I mean, one of his classics as to why liberty was dead and the Fourth Amendment was dead if this sort of thing was permissible. And he got Ginsburg and Sotomayor and Kagan to, to uh, join on with it. So I just thought it was worth making the point that these cases will probably not be discussed at great yeah. length. And yet... And yet this is a perfect example of when courts don't always split in quite the way that we're led to believe that they do.
Yeah, the great thing about Scalia, and it's really enjoyable about him, is that he really is, you know, a guy who takes his own rhetoric seriously in terms of being a, a textualist. I remember some years ago there was, a, I want to say it was an obscenity case, and it was uh, it was a First Amendment case, and a lot of people expressed surprise when Scalia came down uh, on the free speech side of the case because the other side of the case were were conservatives uh, who were looking to enforce this obscenity law. And uh, and there was you know, some commentary about that, and Scalia just said, "Look, <laughs> the right of the people to speak and, and free speech and free press shall not be infringed. It's not that hard." Yeah. And uh, you know, he maybe he doesn't like the you know stuff that he was ruling in favor of. I, was, I think it might have been some sort of pornography or something. But he's like, "Look, the First Amendment says what it says, <laughs> you know, and uh, it doesn't matter if right. I'm." A conservative doesn't matter if I'm a liberal. It doesn't matter if I'm a libertarian. The law is what the law is. And this is what is so disturbing about Sotomayor and her dissent today. She does not give a hoot what the law says. Well, no, people always forget. It's never, ever brought up in these broadside attacks on Scalia that you read so often in the lefty press. Scalia is the guy who uh, concluded that flag burning was protected by the First Amendment. Yeah, Scalia, you know, that might have been the case. Scalia loathes flag burning. Absolutely loads it, and it was discussed in the in the press club event that I watched. He said that it is really one of the worst things that you can do, but it is clearly protected uh, as speech under the First Amendment. And I, I do worry about. I, I don't want to get too far back into our rule of law conversation, but I do worry sometimes that these issues are discussed in the press. And in other, in, in other words, they are discussed in the one arena that the general public watches as if they were just political decisions. Mm. And so the question... <laughs> and so, Which I think they are and you think they aren't. But, uh, well, well, okay. We, we don't, as I say, let's, let's not relitigate that <laughs> argument yeah. from a philosophical perspective, but we can both agree that they really shouldn't be rank political decisions. I mean, the, right. at, yeah. least in, at least in their intent, what they're supposed to be is a marriage of a particular event and the highest law in the land. And I'm not so much saying that, you know, there aren't people on the bench and there haven't always been people on the bench who are going to put forward their own particular point of view and, and, and use the, their position to forward their politics. And I think Sotomayor is a good example, as you just provided. But we shouldn't be talking about them on CNN as if the only thing that matters are the consequences and the outcome of the case rather right. than the text. And yet we do. Well, and here's the difference. You know, if you take Scalia's point of view toward the law and the Constitution, then you get that flag burning case. If you have Scalia's point of view, it doesn't matter what Antonin Scalia thinks about flag burning. It matters what the law says. But if you take the other side's point of view, you know, what Obama calls empathy, uh, what Sonia Sotomayor describes as the virtue of having a quote-unquote wise Latina on the court, well, then you're in Rory Cohn territory, where it's don't tell me what the law says, tell me who the judge is. And then you are, you know, inescapably away from the rule of law and into the rule of, of something else. And so that's why I think, you know, it's not just a question of sort of, you know, icky multicultural uh, rhetoric that bothers me when we're talking about, well, we have to have diversity on the court. We have to yeah. have a wise Latino on the court. We have to have 
African-Americans are the court, or we have too many Catholics on the court. There was an essay about that. Was that Joan Walsh a while back? Too many Catholics on the Supreme Court. So if you're actually trying to follow the law, it doesn't matter who the judge is. It doesn't matter what his background is. It doesn't matter if he's black, white, gay, Martian, or whatever. It matters whether he knows the law, knows the Constitution, and is willing to apply it. And uh, I think that we have reached the point where a lot of people, and not just me, uh, have concluded that you know we're well into the wrong end of that equation. Well, yes and no. We're well into the wrong end of it in the way that we discuss the. I think there's a paradox here, and if anyone listening is a is a scholar of the Supreme Court, please do email me because I could be wrong on this. But email me politely. <laughs> but um, my feeling is that the the last sort of fifty years um, have actually been marked by an awful lot of bad judges and that recently we've got back into appointing people certainly on the right who are, are doing a pretty good job um, of applying the law we only have five of them I think at the moment but the irony is that at the exact point at which we started to talk about the Supreme Court as if it's just a political entity it's got a little bit better or at least there are more people who are uh, behaving like judges and you know I'd, I'd wager that if you'd said to someone in the 1960s or 70s well is the court this impartial arbiter of of what is legal and what is not, they'd have said absolutely, but of course it was no such thing as decisions such as Roe versus Wade demonstrate. So it, it is it is worrying going forward because you have to you have to wonder eventually if the culture starts to think that the Supreme Court just makes its decisions based on which outcomes it likes, then what sort of judges are we going to get in the future? But certainly on, on First Amendment, Second Amendment issues and in fact a, a wide variety of constitutional questions, I think we're in we're in quite a good time. Well, I'll give you that it's better than the 1970s, but almost everything's better than it was in the 1970s. That was, <laughs> True. Yeah, I think it was George Will who once argued that 1968 was the, the cultural low point of American history, but I want to say it's more like around 73. Uh, not, that, not that I ever want to pick a fight with George Will, but I think... Well, uh, hang on, weren't you uh, born in 1973? I was born in 72, oh, so that was just toward the end of 70. That was a great year, Kevin. Yeah, well, that was that was a very fine year, very fine year, uh, 1972. Well, actually, as you know, and you know, I've talked about, I'm very glad to have been born in 1972 because if my birthday had come in September of 1973, I don't think I would probably be here because you know I was I was decided I was born uh, three months before Roe v. Wade was decided uh, to an uh, unmarried teenage girl, and in Texas, uh, no less. In Texas, no less, who had the uh, decency to put me up for adoption rather than having me hacked to pieces. So, you know, for that much, I am, uh, I am grateful that the Supreme Court moves as slowly as it does because 73 would have been a much, much dicier year for me than 72 was. Texas was the state in question in Roe versus Wade, am I right? Yeah, it was. And indeed, the plaintiff has now become a tireless campaigner against abortion, I think I read somewhere. Yeah, I've uh, I've met her, Norma Corby, a couple of times. She uh, she changed her mind on that, and she's she's an odd duck. So you know she's uh, she sort of an evangelical for a while. Then I want to say she became a Catholic, uh, but she's a uh, you know she's a sort of Catholic with a, a lesbian girlfriend that she brings to church and that sort of thing. So she's a little bit all over the map, but. Um, you know, so I, you know, I went to the University of Texas, where uh, the woman who uh, argued the winning side of Roe v. Wade is a uh, faculty there, uh, Sarah Weddington, 
And uh, so there's a lot of you know discussion about stuff around there. And uh, McCorvey has you know been by the campus a few times to uh, talk. So she certainly got on the right side of the issue. You know, one of the things I thought was really disturbing about it was that um, you know these cases they go out and you know, they find plaintiffs and they make arguments on their behalf. But you know it doesn't really have anything to do with a nominal plaintiff. And I want to say that McCorvey said that you know it was it was weeks after the case was decided before she figured out that she was the uh, the row in question when someone uh, let her know about it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is the, the Supreme Court. Obviously, doesn't intervene. I, in fact, the uh, Indian Supreme Court is active; it's proactive. So, if you if it sees that there is uh, action by a, a government agency that it believes to be unconstitutional or a violation of the law, then it will issue an order. Right, doesn't have to have a case. Absolutely, yeah. but of course, because the Supreme Court is reactive and it can turn down or accept what it wants to, then you tend to get ahead of steam behind cases. Very rare. It, it, it's always the sort of romantic, movieized version of events where one guy fights all the odds up through the courts and eventually gets his case heard. But of course, what it really does is reflect large societal trends. By the time that the court makes a decision, it's very often trying to reconcile various different decisions that the district courts and circuit courts have have put together. So absolutely, I mean, yeah, she's the name on it. And this is why I wrote in my piece about Mitch McConnell, I sort of feel bad for uh, Mitch, uh, for the uh, Sean McCutcheon, rather, in the, in the sort of recent campaign finance case, because it's one thing to throw Citizens United around with abandon and with vitriol or with love, but his name is now going to be <laughs> yeah. the one McCutcheon is going to be is going to be thrown around, but and and of course, shall live in infamy. Yeah, he he of course though is just emblematic. He's the product of a movement that has for a long time been trying to get rid of of these laws, as as with her. So, yeah, it's, yeah we uh, know since the subject of uh, subject of Sarah Weddington came up, I thought I I would mention we should probably talk about you know the three most charming and entertaining things ever written by a feminist college professor. <laughs> <laughs> 